Good morning. I'll try it one more time. Good morning, Springbrook. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for allowing me to be here. Uh, it's not my first time here. Uh, and so I actually feel like uh, this is one of my homes away from home. So thank you for uh, the hospitable welcome that you always give me and my family. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, for those of you that haven't had the opportunity to say hello to me and likewise for me uh, to say hello to you um, and get to know one another. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. My wife uh, and I are both from that same area. And she asked people, she asked to say this. Uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, we've known each other for over 30 years. So if you ever see her, uh, she looks like she's 20 or 21, but we've actually known each other for 30 years. Next month, we'll be celebrating our seventh wedding anniversary. So uh, my contract has been renewed seven times. And uh, thank you. Thank you for the round of applause. And, and so uh, very excited. So that's 30 seconds about me. I'd love to spend the rest of the time on Jesus, if that's okay, right? Uh, but before I do... I just want to thank this church, uh, both uh, Pastor Richard and uh, Pastor Dan uh, have just been incredibly uh, gracious to my family and I. Last week, we actually had a, a death in the family in this church, uh, just threw their arms around me um, as if I was a weekly attender. And uh, it's just little things like that that make a huge difference. So uh, I'm grateful uh, to, to both of them and the uh, folks that serve here. Thank you. Uh, a thousand times. Thank you. I really just appreciate that. And um, and we can go ahead and give a round of applause for Pastor Dan and Pastor Richard and, and the team here. Thank you. Uh, Pastor Richard even uh, did the slides here for me. I mean, it's just uh, just been showing incredible hospitality. And Pastor Dan, I'm told, is the biggest Cubs fan in our congregation. That's what I'm told, right? Any other Cubs? It's a few other Cubs fans that are here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so um, I'm excited about uh, that. As a matter of fact, I don't know if anyone told you, but I actually had an opportunity to go to Game 7 uh, of the World Series um, when the Cubs, uh, they won the World Series. And I, I brought a picture. Uh, that's me outside of Progressive Field in Cleveland. I've got a friend of mine who said, hey, if you can clear your schedule and you can take the drive down to Cleveland, uh, I can get you in the game. I've got a ticket. And uh, we can be at Game 7 of the World Series. And so I cleared my schedule, and, and I, uh, I made the drive down there. And what an incredible journey that was, right? Um, I think I've got another picture here of me actually in the uh, stadium, uh, kind of looking over. I guess it was about 38,000, 40,000 of us that actually got an opportunity to witness that there, and then the rest of us watching on television. Um, what an incredible experience. Now, we know how it ended, right? It ended with... Uh, the Chicago Cubs breaking the curse of 108 years and championship rings and a parade downtown with 5 million people, the largest gathering in human history in the Western Hemisphere that's ever been recorded. I mean, we know how it ended, right? It ended with the parade and the celebration and all of that stuff. But it, it began with uh, anxiety and angst. As a matter of fact, I remember that particular day uh, sitting there in Cleveland, and I remember that day um, I was just trying to figure out how things were going to go because the Cubs were down 3-1 to one in that series, and they battled back to tie the series 3-3, three to three, and Game 7 was, it, it's it, there is no Game 8. So they had to win on that particular day, and I just remember going into the stadium. I did some research just in case the manager, Joe Madden, was going to, 
call me in to actually play. So I, I wanted to be fully prepared. And I had my, my hat on and everything like that. And um, the first bit of research that I did, and really the only bit of research I did, was on the starting pitcher for the Cleveland Indians, just in case I was ever called up to bat. And uh, I did some research on Corey Kluber was his name. He's a starting pitcher for the Indians. And this young man, he, um, he, he has three pitches. And this doesn't mean anything to anyone unless you're a baseball aficionado, but he has three pitches. He's got a fastball and a sinker and a curveball. And the amazing thing to me is he uses those three pitches to strike out some of the greatest athletes in the world including our own Rizzo and Brian and Almara Jr. and uh, Ross, these great batters. He uses these same three pitches just to strike our guys out. Just, just three pitches. Fastball, curve, sinker. Somebody, some people say sinker, slider. That's it. Just three pitches. And it, it kind of reminds me of this, this uh, famous story. You may have heard of it. There was a little boy one day, and he was uh, just in his backyard, and he picked up a ball, and he had a bat. He picked the ball, and he threw the ball up, and he took a swing, and he said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. When he took the swing, he missed. And uh, he was a little dismayed, but he wasn't discouraged. So he picked the ball up again, and he threw it up again, and he said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. took another swing, and he missed again. And uh, this time he was discouraged and dismayed, but he figured, hey, I'll try one more time. Little boy, he picked the ball up. He threw it up again. He said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Took a swing. He missed the third time. And uh, he knows what we all know. Three strikes and you're out. And so he thought about it and he said, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. It's a lot funnier when I thought about it. The reality is we all sometimes have to change our perspective on things, right? Uh, Sometimes uh, things don't go the way that we want them to go. And sometimes in life we strike out. And uh, so today I want to talk about a single verse that changed my life. It changed the entire trajectory of my life. And maybe today uh, it may be helpful to set you on course to be on fire, and it may change your life as well. So the premise of me having this singular verse, which we'll get to in just a moment, the premise is this notion of temptation, this notion of temptation. So it started with uh, Jesus, who, similar to three pitches that Corey Kluber has, that just tries to strike out the greatest hitters in the world, Jesus had to deal with this as well. And um, the scripture talks about Jesus, Matthew 4 and 1. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led into the Spirit, or led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And here's what happened. Satan, as he was there talking to Jesus, Jesus about to start his public ministry, and he had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was at what we would consider a, a weak point physically because he had emptied himself out so that God's Spirit could fill him and he'd be able to do ministry, which is serving the needs of others. And he gets there, and Satan says 
If you're truly the son of God, you'll command these stones to be turned into bread. We know that you're hungry. Been fasting for 40 days. So if you are who you say you are, prove it. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus responded by saying, man shall not live by bread alone. Then Satan took Jesus up onto a mountain and he said, look out and see all of this and realize that if you are the son of God, there should be angels. You can cast yourself down and angels will catch you. Prove it. And Jesus responded by reminding Satan that he should not tempt the Lord thy God. And Satan, a third pitch, said, well, Jesus, let let me show you all of the kingdoms of the world. And look to all of these kingdoms. All of this can be yours if you'll just bow down yourself to me. And Jesus responded, we know, by saying, get behind me, Satan. It seems as though Jesus had three pitches. Just like Corey Kluber has. Just, Just three pitches. And the reality is, those three pitches are the same pitches that we all have. And they're simply the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Three simple pitches. Command these stones to be turned into bread. Look over the city, cast yourself down, and these angels will catch you. Pitch two. Pitch three, look out. And all the kingdoms of the world can be yours if you'll bow down yourself to me. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This won't be on the screen. I just want to read this scripture over us. If it makes sense for you to close your eyes, you can do that. I just want to read this scripture over us and and we can fully understand the grasp and the gravity that we have as we're travailing through this life. 1 John, 2nd chapter and the 15th verse. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. Another version says, For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Somebody ought to shout amen. And so that's it. The three pitches. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It is not dissimilar to what Eve had to face in the third chapter of Genesis when she was in the Garden of Eden. And the scriptures say, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate of it. When she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, pride of life, she took and ate of it. Same three pitches. All that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Here's how it's described by many scholars. It's called the human nature in its fourfold state. This chart shows that before the fall of man, or before Eve ate of that fruit, she was deceived by the deceiver. Before that happened, we call it the pre-fall state of man, we were able to sin, 
So we were able to make wrong decision, but we were able to not sin. She had a choice. She could eat of the tree of life or she could eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and she chose to be disobedient. But then after that fall, that's the post-fall man, after she made the wrong decision, we're able to sin now, and we're unable to not sin because there was no atonement, there was no sacrifice, there was no propitiation for our sins, there was no remission or taking away of our sins. But I'm thankful in Matthew, the first chapter, in the 21st verse, it says, she shall bring forth a son, she being Mary, and they'll call his name Jesus, and he'll save his people from their sins. And that's the reborn state of man where we're able to sin, But we're also able to not sin. We're back in a situation where we have a choice. We don't have to just commit sins. But I'm thankful that even in the midst of temptation and even in the midst of difficulty and trial and tribulation, as some people will say, there is a glorified man where when we get to heaven, it's the eternal state. We'll be able to not sin and unable to sin. I'm thankful that when we get into eternity, there is no more sin. And that's reason for a celebration. I'm thankful for that. All that's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here's how we look at sin. Um, and here's how God looks at sin. So we usually have, um, where we look at sin, where we have big sins and little sins, and so a big sin, or excuse me, a little sin might be, um, my wife has a dog, a little Yorkshire Terrier, gives us a ton of problems, and uh, it's six pounds, and um, I've looked up to see how long these little Yorkshire Terriers live, and for some reason this dog will not die. And if you're looking for a dog, I know a great dog that you can have for free. It's my wife's dog. His, his name is Charleston. And so um, a little sin is like taking your wife's dog out so that he can use the restroom and leaving him outside too long. That's a little sin. A big sin is like putting your wife's dog up on Craigslist to be sold. So you see, there's big sin and then there's little sin. But the way God views sin, so that's how we as people, we look at sin. The way God views sin, it's, it's a top view as opposed to a side view. There is no big sin. There is no little sin. Are you still with me? Shout amen. Amen. Similarly, the way that we look at temptation is we say, well, there are some big temptations that we have to face and some little temptations that we have to face. So um, a little temptation is like when I was walking my wife's dog, and um, again, he's a little six-pound Yorkshire Terrier. Uh, The other day, my neighbor had a Rottweiler, And my wife's dog started barking at the Rottweiler. And little temptation is me wanting to let the leash go so he could meet his maker. That's little temptation. Big temptation is the little tingle that I had in my leg to kind of nudge him over there. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. it it's, it's temptation. I didn't yield to the temptation. But you see, that's how we look at things. We look at it like big temptations and little temptations. But the way that temptation is described in the Bible is lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. It's all like pitches. And often in life, it's strike one, strike two, strike three, 
you're out. Here's how Paul described it in Romans, the seventh chapter, because Paul understood the gravity of living this life as a human being, and he knew that we wrestled not against flesh and blood, but the reality is sometimes the enemy, you may have heard, is the inner me, and inside each of us is at least two of us. We're wrestling against the flesh and the spirit, or otherwise, we're wrestling against our heart and our mind. And Paul said, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, and if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God. Somebody ought to shout, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so he says, there is this wrestling between the heart and the mind. When I want to do good, I don't. I try every day. I, I, I get up and I say, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing and I don't do the right thing. Have you ever been there? Just blink your eyes. Every day. And who is going to deliver me from the body of this death? It seems like I'm captive. Seems like, like I'm trapped in a state of being. Jeremiah knew it. Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's why Paul said, if there's a wrestling between the heart and the mind, don't be conformed to this world. Remember what I talked about at the beginning? All that is in the world is those three pitches. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So there is this struggle that's going on between the heart and the mind, and what am I going to do about it? Paul says, I thank God, Jesus Christ, he'll come up to the plate and he'll hit a home run for us every time. And that's worthy of a celebration. Somebody ought to be glad about that. It's worthy of a celebration. And so the disciples, they knew this. They knew that Jesus had been tempted and that he had overcome temptation. And so when he came off of that mountain that we talked about in Matthew, the fourth chapter, the disciples said, hey, John's 
followers, his disciples, his friends, were taught by John to pray. And we know that that's a powerful tool. He says, those disciples said, you have overcome temptation. Teach us how you can do that. And this leads to what changed my life. The disciples said, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, the words that we know. Okay, when you pray, say these words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We know those words. We have said them. And then he gives them the opportunity to request four things. He says, first, pray that God's kingdom will come. Will come on earth as it is in heaven. Then pray that God will give you daily bread or daily benefits. And then pray that your sins will be forgiven. And don't forget to forgive your brothers and sisters as well. But then the fourth is the verse that changed everything for me. This singular verse changed my life since I became a Christ follower 17 years ago. Everything changed. This singular verse. He said, when you pray, fourth request, pray that God won't lead you into anything that he can't deliver you from. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Sometimes I would gloss over that, like, okay, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen. But that verse, it changed it for me. God has the ability to lead us into paths of righteousness for us not to suffer into temptation. And so I had to look up that word temptation. I needed to know exactly what it meant. And temptation, this word in the Greek, the original language, is parismo, which means a test at its root. And I went to school, I went to the University of Alabama, so I know tests, right? We all took tests. And uh, I know this, that they're good tests and they're bad tests. They're tests, some of them, that start with a trial, and then they end up with triumph. And then there's some tests that start with trouble. I don't know where this is coming from, like a bad pitch. And then it ends with tragedy, like a strikeout. Some tests start with a trial and they end with a triumph, similar to the tests that are on the uh, syllabus, right? You know that test is coming. You can prepare for it, like a midterm or a final exam. You don't really want to take a test. Nobody really wants to take a test, but everybody wants to graduate to the next level. Somebody ought to shout amen. And so you, you know it's coming. You can prepare for it. You can be ready on the day of testing, or the day of temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the test that's on the, the syllabus is a good test that starts with a trial that leads to triumph like graduation. But the bad test is like a pop quiz. I didn't know it was coming. I just showed up to class. It, this wasn't on the syllabus. And all of a sudden, I sit down and the teacher says, take out a sheet of paper and a pencil. And she or he starts asking me questions that I don't know the answer to. And I've got to take this. And that's the test that starts with trouble and it leads to tragedy. Almost always I would fail the pop quizzes. Maybe I'm the only one. And those 
tests, it seemed, were, were meant to prove that you didn't know what you were doing. The Bible talks about this uh, because the Bible says in Genesis, the third chapter, that, or Genesis a little later on after the third chapter, that God did tempt Abraham. You all know the story that uh, Abraham was uh, chosen by God to be the father of many nations, but he had to wait almost a century in order to have a child. He finally had a child. That child's name was Isaac. So him and his wife Sarah, they had Isaac, and God tempted Abraham. That word in the Hebrew is nasa, which means tested Abraham, to see if Abraham loved his son more than he loved God. Do you love Isaac more than you love me? And if you love me more than you love Isaac, take Isaac up on this mountain and sacrifice him. Kill him. And so Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah, and he was going to sacrifice him. You know the story. And because God saw that Abraham was passing the test, he said, no, there's a better sacrifice. Look at the ram caught in the bush. And that's what you can sacrifice. So that was a test. God did tempt Abraham is what it says. And in reality, that's a test that Abraham passed. Praise God. But... James says that there's a different type of test. This is the pop quiz type. This is the one that starts with trouble and it leads to tragedy. James says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me like this. This is the negative test. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away or drawn away by their own evil desire and entice. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. In other words, it looks like this. It starts with desire or like lust, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And then uh, it goes towards enticement, something that is drawing you away or dragging you away. And then you conceive it in your heart, that birth sin and the wages of sin is death. Here's... Here's what it looks like for those of you that are scientists in the room. Here's, here's what it looks like in your brain. Let's take the lust of the eyes. You first see something so uh, as it goes towards your eye there. Once it goes towards your eyes, if you follow the little arrows there, it actually goes straight to the back of your brain to this recognition area near the cerebellum. So it's something that's tempting you that you see, something that... Uh, you want to buy that you know you shouldn't have or uh, something that you, you want to have that belongs to someone else. It starts by something that you see, and then it goes straight to a recognition point near the back of your brain. But then from there, it goes to the prefrontal lobe all the way to the front of your brain. And then you'll see there, there's a little red uh, nerve that goes down to either the reward system or your emotion complex, and that little red uh, nerve is what we call a delay switch. God has wired each of us to pause before we make a decision. And the reality is, our decision will either be acting out of emotion, what feels good, or based on our judgment or our reward system or what we call our moral compass. If we act out of emotion, it goes straight down your spine and then all of a sudden your your Actual limbs start acting upon emotion. Oh, I want this. And you go to Woodfield Mall and you pick it up and now I'm going to take this and I'm going to buy this and I don't really need it. 
But if you act out of your moral compass or your reward system, which is on top of the emotion uh, portion of your brain, it goes up to your motor cortex, and then it goes down towards your spine and your limbs, and you have effectively done what God wants you to do. Be prepared in the day of temptation. But when temptation actually comes, if you're not prepared, your brain looks like this. You've got neurons and electrons and all types of wires and things that are going on. And can you imagine trying to make a decision in the day of temptation when you're not fully prepared? It's sort of like being in the batter's box in Game 7 of the World Series facing Corey Kluber, and you haven't prepared yourself. There's a good chance you're going to strike out. And so what do you do if life is like a baseball game? What's your game plan? If life throws you curveballs and fastballs and sinkers and sliders and you've got these three pitches, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and they're coming at you all the time and you're swinging and missing, what do you do? What's your game plan? There's a scholar named St. Bernard, and he said it this way. Hear these words. This is temptation causing the moral fiber of our lives to deteriorate. If this cold once penetrates the soul, when, as so often happens, the soul is neglectful and the spirit asleep, and if no one, God forbid, is there to curb it, then it reaches into the soul's interior descends to the depths of the heart and the recesses of the mind, paralyzes the affections, obstructs the paths of counsel, unsteadies the light of judgment, fetters the liberty of the spirit, and soon, as appears to bodies sick with fever, a rigor of the mind takes over. The law is cheated. Justice is rejected. What is right is outlawed. The fear of the Lord is abandoned. Shamelessness finally gets free reign. Strike one, strike two, strike three. You're out. So what are we going to do? We talked about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, like three pitches. Uh, Another way to say that is uh, temptation is similar to girls, gold, and glory. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes, pride of life. Girls, gold, and glory. It kind of seems like just those three things. Or um, for girls, it's guys, gold, and glory. That's, That's what it seems like. Temptation really can be typified in those three categories. So if those are the three pitches that we're facing every day, how do we avoid striking out? Here's what I want to offer, and then we'll conclude. These three things. Guts, grace, and gratitude. Why don't you say those words after me? Guts. Grace. Gratitude. Say them again. Guts. Grace. Gratitude. One last time. Guts. Grace. Gratitude. That's what I suggest. I told you I went to the University of Alabama, and uh, the head coach at the University of Alabama, Nick Saban, he says that there are two pains in life. 
there's the pain of discipline and the pain of disappointment. And if you can handle the pain of discipline, you'll never have to deal with the pain of disappointment. And so the first thing that I suggest in order to have a game plan if life is like a baseball game is we've got to have some guts. And what I mean by that is every day, regardless of if we have struck out before, we've got to get back up to the batter's box and we've got to be willing to take another swing. If you're going through a medical issue right now, My heart goes out to you. Get up in the morning, and with the help of God, take another swing. If you started a business and that business didn't work out so well, or if you had an idea and you're right in the middle of that struggle, my heart goes out to you. Get up in the morning, take another swing. If you've been in an abusive situation, whether it's a family or a friend, my heart goes out to you. But God has given us courage and not fear. Get up in the morning. Have some guts. Take a swing. You know who struck out and still had enough guts to take another swing? David. David messed up big time, man. He struck out in front of everybody. He was the king of Israel. God had anointed and appointed David. And David went and took another man's wife and had that man killed. That's striking out big time. But you know what he did? After realizing how wrong he was, he wrote these words. He prayed this prayer, Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions and my sins. Against you I've sinned and done evil in your sight, God. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge me. Surely I was sinful at birth from conception. From, uh, in sin, my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even from the womb. And he said these words as he took another swing. Cleanse me from hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. David got back up and he took another swing because he had guts, and I'm suggesting for you to have guts. Somebody shout, have guts. Second thing is grace. You know who took three swings and it didn't work out for him? Paul. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. And he prayed about it three times, and his answer was denied. But you know what God responded? God said, my grace is sufficient for you. So first, I want you to remember David and have guts. But secondly, remember Paul, even when you take a swing and you miss, he prayed three times, realize that God's grace is sufficient. And the final thing is, I want you to have gratitude. Even when you're going through a trial, smile through the trial. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9 says, Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, Paul said, when I'm weak, 
and I've taken a swing and I miss. I miss seeing my kids grow up. I miss golden opportunities that God's placed on my heart to do good, to help others, to serve at the church, to be in fellowship with others. I miss, I miss, I miss. He says, when I'm weak, I'm also strong. So guts, grace, and gratitude. I'm closing with this. Um, I told you about the opportunity I had to go to uh, the World Series Game 7. It was a tremendous opportunity. Uh, I, I remember um, some picture that you saw earlier. I was sitting up in the upper deck at first, and uh, when I was sitting in the upper deck, I was talking to a lady when the game started, and she mentioned that she was a season ticket holder for the Cleveland Indians, and they give you tickets to all of the playoff games, and so she got tickets at a discounted rate because she was a season ticket holder, and she actually sold her tickets, which are down on the third baseline. She sold her tickets for $19,000. And so you can imagine that was quite an interesting conversation I had with her. And so she was sitting next to me up in the upper deck. But here's what happened. As the game went on, those of you that watched the game, you know that uh, right about the 10th inning, it started raining. And so there was a pause in the game. And at that time, a lot of the Cleveland Indians fans, they were sitting down on that third baseline where this lady had sold her $19,000 tickets. They vacated, and they didn't come back. So who do you think was sitting down on the third baseline for the final inning of Game 7 of the World Series to see his favorite team break a 108-year-old curse? Yes, only God allowed me to be down there and to watch. I got closer and closer to home plate and sure enough, the Chicago Cubs, they won the World Series. And I know why you all aren't really cheering and celebrating. They told me that there were some uh, Orioles fans and some Cardinals fans and Reds fans here and some White Sox fans and everybody's not Cubs fans. We're going to have a special prayer line for those of you that are not Cubs fans. Uh, I think the elders are going to be praying with that group uh, to, to try and get you to see the error of your ways. Uh, but the reality is I watched this game for the very first time a couple of days ago, and it was different from when I first was at the game. When I was at the game, I was filled with anxiety, and I didn't know how Corey Kluber was going to pitch. But a couple of days ago when I watched it again, I was relaxed. And you know why I was relaxed? I already knew the outcome. And I think in life, we don't have to be as filled with anxiety if we realize that God already knows the outcome. And regardless of what local team you like, what major league baseball team you like, the reality is there was a guy 2,000 years ago that went to Calvary and had an opportunity to take a swing, and he hit a grand slam for all of us. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that is worth celebrating. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we're grateful today that even though life throws us curveballs, fastballs, and all types of crazy pitches, you give us the opportunity to get up again and take another swing. So I pray that everybody that can 
hear these words. We'll be reminded of what you reminded me of 17 years ago, and it's the one constant that's been a part of my life. It's changed my life. It's been a part of my life every single day for 17 plus years. That's the reminder that every night before I go to bed and I metaphorically close my inning, you remind me that I can get in the batter's box and bend my knees and say a prayer. I can take a swing and hit a pitch up to heaven. And the reason why it's important for me, and you've reminded me of this, to say that prayer, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because I don't know what type of temptation I'm going to face the next day. And so I pray that everyone here will be challenged with that every single night. They'll get in their metaphorical batter's box, bend their knees, say a prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I pray that your will will be done, your kingdom will come. In Jesus' name, everyone agreed and said, amen. God bless you.